your program staff and a few lay leaders in our church were away last week at Calvin College, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and we were there for a worship symposium, which is a gathering of people from all around the world. There's, I think, over a thousand people that were there. And we worshiped together. We went to classes together. We did a lot of learning. And it was a great experience. I got to go a day early because two of my very best friends live in Holland, Michigan, which is right next to Grand Rapids. And they were best friends of mine from seminary, and they got married right after seminary. And they now have a one-and-a-half-year-old, so I get a chance to go out there a day early to see them and spend time with them. And my friend Derek, he has his Ph.D. in theology, but he specializes in doing a theological reading of Scripture now, this is really complex, and he showed me his dissertation. I could only understand a few sentences, but, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, he, but while we were talking and we were spending time with his son, Theo, who's a year and a half old, and we were reading the Jesus Storybook Bible together, and Derek looked at me and he said to me, he said, Kurt, actually, the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible is probably the best, the best uh, way I could communicate to other people, like, what I do in ministry as a doctor of theology and, and how to have a theological reading of scripture. So we read it together and we talked together about it for a little while and we read it with Theo. And so I thought today for today's sermon, I would read some of this introduction for you all. And then I'll read the story from Exodus chapter 14 out of the Jesus Storybook Bible rather than out of the NRSV for us this morning. So it'll be hard to follow along on the screens. The, the font is small, but there's images. So I allow you like a children's book reading to just pay attention to the images and I'll, I'll read them to you this morning. So listen now to God's word. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you how people you should copy. The Bible has heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible, they aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. And now Exodus 14. Moses and God's people. Oh, you can go back one slide, Danny. Back one slide. There you go. Moses and God's people escaped out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They didn't know the way, but God knew the way, and he would show them. I will bring you to a new home, a special land God promised them. I will look after you. I am with you. 
God sent a big cloud for them to follow, a pillar of smoke stretching up to the sky. It moved in front of them as they walked and shaded them from the blazing heat of the day. And when it was time to rest, it stopped. All through the cold desert nights, it kept them warm, glowing like fire. God led his people through the desert to the edge of a great sea. They were just wondering how to cross it when suddenly they heard a terrible and thundering and pounding. It sounded like horses' hooves. And they shaded their eyes and they looked back and they screamed. It was. Pharaoh and his army were coming to get them. Pharaoh had changed his mind. Get my slaves back, he yelled, and charged out into the desert after them with 600 of his fastest horsemen and every single chariot in Egypt. What were God's people going to do? In front of them was this big sea. It was so big there was no way around it. But there was no way through it. It was too deep. They didn't have any boats, so they couldn't sail across. And they couldn't swim across because it was too far and they would drown. And they couldn't turn back because Pharaoh was chasing them. They could see the flashing swords now, glinting in the baking sun, and the dust clouds, and chariot after scary chariot surging towards them. So they did the only thing there was left to do. Panic! We're going to die, they shrieked. Don't be afraid, Moses said. But there's nothing we can do, they screamed. God knows you can't do anything, Moses said. God will do it for you. Trust him. Watch. But there's no way out, they cried. God will make a way, Moses said. Another minute and it would have all been over. But then the strangest thing happened. God made the pillar of smoke move, and it moved up behind his people and hid them from the Egyptians. And then God sent a strong east wind, and it blew all night long. And it blew on the water of the big sea. It blew it to the left, and it blew it to the right, until it blew it into two towering walls of water. And there, right through the middle of the sea, a muddy pathway opened up, and God's people walked across on dry land." When the Egyptians tried to follow the walls of the water, they crashed down on them and swallowed them up. God's people were safe. They danced and laughed and sang and thanked God. When there had been no way out, God made a way. Many years later, once again, God was going to make a way where there was no way. From the beginning, God's children had been running from him and hiding. God knew his children could never be happy without him but they couldn't get back to him by themselves. They were lost. They didn't know the way back, but God knew the way. And one day he would show them. This is the gift of God's word. Let us pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last year I discovered a new life passion of mine. It's um, mountain trail biking. And I've talked about this and I share about it on social media. But I'd never been mountain biking before out on trails until last year when my friend Rafael Avendano invited me to go biking with him. And it's become the most joyful activity that I do. 
I love it so much. I grew up hiking and being in the outdoors, and so I've always liked to be on trails and climbing mountains and doing things like that. But when you're walking, at most you can do is three miles an hour, right? When you're walking, at most you can do is three miles an hour. But when you're mountain biking, you can do about 10 miles an hour or so. You can travel great distances and climb mountains and go up and down and see more terrain. It's amazing. And actually, right over here in Belmont, there's a park called Water Dog Park. Do any of you know about Water Dog Park in Belmont? Okay, lots of you do. Perhaps some of you have walked there or have mountain biked there as well. And it's an amazing park. It has lots of ups and downs. And at the very top of, of Water Dog Park, there's a section of the trail that's called the Rambler. And after I'd been biking for a few months, Raphael felt it was time for me that I was no longer a beginner and I can now move to intermediate phase and go down this segment of the mountain that was a bit more um, challenging. There's big boulders and rocks in the way. There's drops that are two or three feet. And you're thinking, yeah, if, if you've never been mountain biking, you're thinking, how do you do this? How do you, how do you safely do this? I was also thinking that too. How do I safely do this? Um, my heart was pounding and racing, thinking, I don't know if I really made it to intermediate, Raphael. I'm not sure. Um, but he said, no, trust me. Just trust me. It'll be okay. Just follow me, follow my line, and trust everything that you've learned, and you'll make it through it. So I, I did it, and I, I followed him, and I made it through this super hard section. No crashes, nothing bad happened to me. And at the other side of it, I let out this big yell. I don't even know what I said, but I just think I started screaming, and we high-fived, and we had a little fist bump. It was this joyful moment in my life that um, I had made it through this path. It was certainly challenging. That moment when I had my heart rate, when it was just pounding a little bit, and I was getting so nervous and so anxious, I think there's this something in our culture that, um, that in those moments that happen to us that, that trains us to be risk averse, that trains us to be risk averse, like small little voice in our mind that says, don't do this, you don't need to do this, just go take a walk back the other direction. You can put the bike down and go somewhere else. Our culture at times trains us to be risk averse. This weekend when I was spending time with high school students at the Youth Mexico Mission Trip garage sale, I was talking to some seniors and how things were going about applying to colleges, and people were telling me about the schools they were applying to, and then they said, yeah, but I'm also applying to my backup schools in case I don't get into the schools that I really want to get into. And I thought that term backup school is so interesting. It's that part of our culture that wants us to be risk averse, you know, just, just in case we don't get to the things that we really want to get to, we have risk averseness in us. And for those of us who have the privilege of having retirement portfolios, the language that we use to talk about retirement portfolios can be, is usually risk, at least that's what I think. Um, some other people know retirement portfolios better than me. That you want to have investments that are a little bit risky, but not too risky. And you want to have a nice balance to your portfolio and so that you not have everything in risky investments. You want to have risk averseness is a good thing in that way. Sometimes when it comes to conversation with each other, too, I think our culture sometimes trains us to be risk-averse when we talk to one another. We could just be, ask a simple question like, how are you? How are you doing? But do we really want to answer that question? Do we have the space and the time to share our burdens, to share what's on our hearts with one another? Maybe not. Maybe we're going 10 miles an hour down a mountain and you don't have a chance to really bear your soul with one another. 
when we were in Michigan, we were at, a, at the conference. I went to a lecture, and this pastor was talking to a room full of pastors. And the pastor was saying that he and his congregation has this thing he calls the 75% rule. And what the 75% rule is that he's trying to create a church community that's very inclusive of different, um, different racial backgrounds, different age backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses. And so to try to create a radically inclusive community, he's created the 75% rule, where he says he only wants his congregation to be comfortable 75% of the time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you can imagine all the other pastors in the chairs were going, whoa, uh, if I did that, I wouldn't have a job anymore. You know, I would be out of ministry. There's something even in pastors that have been trained to be risk averse. You could tell in the whole room, this one person was saying, it's okay, you could make people uncomfortable sometime. And they thought, no, we were, we were in fear, we were panicking in the chairs. For the people of God and the Israelites in Exodus 14, there's a risk aversion that comes for them as well. But it's not, it's not coming from a place like of privilege, like me being on my mountain bike or the retirement portfolio, but it comes from this deep trauma that they experienced being slaves in Egypt. They have this deep trauma that comes from being in slavery. When Pharaoh lets them go, they go. And they're trying to get to the promised land. And they're trying desperately to get there. And they're on foot. They're making their journey. God doesn't tell them to go one way to protect them from the Philistines. He redirects them to go this other direction. And then in verse 10, when they finally find themselves at the water, they say to Moses, the people of God are standing there. They're, they say to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? They say, why did you bring us out here, Moses, to die in the wilderness? We could just go back. We could go back. We could have just died in Egypt. We had so much trauma there, we didn't need to endure more trauma. And now that these chariots are coming after us, we could have just died there. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness in this way? There was just this deep trauma in the community. And in the kids' Bible, I love that phrase. I, I don't like seeing all capitalized letters in a word. That's not a good thing usually. But in the kids' Bible, if you could see it, it says, and they panicked. That's why I yelled out loud, because all capped words mean you yell out loud. They panicked. They didn't know what to do. They, they had nothing left to do. They couldn't make it through the water. They couldn't turn around. They, they wished they could go back to what their life was before Pharaoh let them go. But they were panicking. But then in verse 21, the Lord pushes back the sea. The Lord does this powerful and great thing and pushes back the sea. And they're able to walk through on dry land to the other side of the Red Sea. And the water comes back. It destroys the Egyptians, and the people of God find themselves on the other side of the water. And the scripture says that when they're there, they feared and believed in the Lord. They feared and believed in the Lord. Just as for the people of God, when they were gathered at the Red Sea, and they had this inclination to turn back, to go back, like, why, why did we come this far? Let's just go back. Uh, but instead, there's no going back for them. There's only moving deeper and further into fear and belief in God. And so I think that's true for us gathered here today as well, for our church, for church worldwide. There's no going back. There's only moving forward into deeper fear, into deeper belief in God.
it was great to go to Calvin College Worship Symposium this last week because for me, it was like a glimpse of the church gathered on the other side of the Red Sea, joyful, living fully into what it meant to lead the church in the, 20, in the 21st century. We were having all kinds of great conversations about what it's like to be on this side of just trying to dive deep into fear and belief in God and to talk about all sorts of powerful things. Things like music and worship, people were talking about how let's end the language that we use around contemporary and around traditional worship. Because the truth is that even in our traditional worship music, there's sentences, there's semblances of contemporary inside of it. And on the other side, when we have contemporary worship, there's ways in which the traditional is woven into it. How you see an organ and a piano playing together at the same time, like we saw earlier in this worship service. There's also a sense in which we met people all around the world, and now there's new local and global partnerships that the church is fostering. In the 20th century, what was really popular for the church was to have something of value and to give it to other communities and to just give away. But now what we're seeing is partnerships happening, collaboration happening between different organizations all around the world so that it's not just a one-sided transaction but there's really beautiful collaboration happening all around the world. We met churches that were making it their mission to be a community that was reconciling race relations in their communities. That there wasn't other entities in their communities that were doing this work, but the church was doing it. And it was so great to meet people and leaders from all around the world that were interested in trying to do this work. There was even churches that were talking about going back to the 75% you know, rule, uh, that there's just become more clarity now about how to talk about faith and politics and the life in the church, where there didn't used to be. People were talking about all of these things. And it was so great to be gathered on that other side of the Red Sea, so to speak, with these churches and these leaders, because I think when we find ourselves in moments of stress and panic about where we are, there's that there's that sense that we should just go back. We should go back. I'm sure some of you have felt that way even in worshiping in any church community. Maybe we have this thing in our mind that says, I wish I could go back to when it was like this, when it comes to music. I wish we could go back to the way I knew missions work was 40 years ago. I wish I could go back to when the words faith and politics never occurred in the life of a church. I wish I could go back when we didn't have to have uncomfortable conversations in the life of the church. These moments that cause stress and panic and uncomfortableness because we don't know what to do. Because we find ourselves surrounded by a Red Sea, we find ourselves surrounded by chariots of Egyptians, and we don't know what to do. But God knows what to do. God knows what to do. And God will lead us like the pillar of smoke through the waters to the other side of the Red Sea, and we will find ourselves there free, free, and in a more deeper fear and belief in the Lord. So may we break free. May we break free from our panic when we don't see a way out in our lives. May high school students break free from the stresses of what's to come after high school. May we break free from thinking about what is coming in retirement for me. Do I have enough money in the bank? Do I have enough money in good investments? May we break free from that and trust in the daily bread that God is giving to us. 
May we break free from everything that oppresses us and casts us into the roles of oppressors when we want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. May we break free from the history of the church that truly has tainted history in which we weren't faithfully following Jesus Christ, but we were following other things in the world. May we break free from all of this and so that we don't want to go back, but we just want to emerge deeper and deeper and deeper into a faithful following of Jesus Christ where we would fear and believe in the Lord together as a community. Let's break free as we trust in God. He has a way. God has a way. Let's pray together. Got to give you thanks that in your darkest hour, in Jesus' darkest hour, when it all seemed like there was nothing left, no, there was nothing left to do, and as he died on the cross, there was despair, there was lament, and yet you knew a way, God. You knew a way to rescue him, and through that to rescue us all. And so we give you thanks, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, for his life, for his redemption, and how he is redeeming us in this moment. God, for everything that causes us to panic and distress and anxiety in our lives, may you break us free from that as we can deepen our faith and our trust and our fear in you, that you have a way, that you have a way. So help us be faithful followers of you, Lord, and help us draw closer to you through this worship service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you rise now in body or spirit as we continue to worship?